0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Daniel Sarah Karasik and Dara Title. It would be hard to overstate the impacts of COVID-19. The death toll globally is approaching 2.5 million, and it recently surpassed 20,000 in Canada. The direct impacts also include significant suffering, as well as long-term medical consequences in at least a subset of patients, the exact implications of which are not yet fully understood. And as is so often the case, there is plenty of evidence that people who are already marginalized through things like racism and poverty are experiencing disproportionately worse health impacts from the virus. And then there's the ways that it has transformed our lives, the grief of survivors, the lost jobs, the life plans disrupted. A lot of us find ourselves living in sometimes subtly, but often powerfully different ways than we did before, and while different is not necessarily bad, in this case a lot of the changes mean fewer opportunities to be with each other, and that isn't good. And yet, it's not at all clear that it has to be this way. Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, even the maritime provinces and northern territories within Canada have had much, much more success than the central and western provinces at keeping case counts and deaths low. Today's guests are focused on the ways in which the Ontario government and the federal government have been responding to COVID-19. But much of what they have to say applies to governments across North America and in other parts of the world. Daniel Sarah, Karasik and Dara Title are activists in a range of movements in Toronto, and they are speaking today as members of the Suppress the Virus Now Coalition. They argue that Ontario and Canada are making policy choices that, yes, aim to keep health systems from being overwhelmed, but because they are fundamentally prioritizing corporate profits rather than human well-being, they're not trying to go beyond that. Effectively, this is premised on accepting widespread sickness, suffering, and death, particularly for people who are low-wage workers, disabled, immunocompromised, older, incarcerated, black or otherwise racialized, and indigenous. Instead, this wide-ranging coalition of groups, organizations, and individuals demanded in a recent published statement, quote, that our elected officials explicitly adopt the humane goal of eliminating community spread of COVID-19, end quote. In the short term, this would involve the use of much more rigorous and widespread closures than we have yet seen. However, in contrast with the current closure regimes that have fluctuating intensity but no clear goals and no apparent endpoint, these would be strategically implemented to crush community spread and to end within a limited period of time. As well, they would be accompanied by the kind of direct government supports that would be necessary to make widespread closure of schools, workplaces, and public spaces livable. And for workplaces that had to remain open, and then community-wide as things opened up, there would be far more comprehensive investment in infrastructure to test, trace, and respond to outbreaks than we have seen so far in this country. Support measures would foreground questions of equity, and beyond direct support would have to include things like mandatory paid sick days, the right to refuse work that would put you at risk of COVID, an eviction ban and rent cancellation, the provision of safe and accessible housing options for homeless people, and decarceration. Other measures would include increasing social assistance rates and the minimum wage, ending for-profit long-term care, shifting a portion of police funding to social and health supports for black, indigenous, and racialized communities, regularization of status for all migrants, and greater restrictions on interprovincial travel. Notably, today's interview participants are very clear that they and the coalition are vehemently opposed to carceral or policing-based responses to the pandemic, which they argue are ineffective and put black, indigenous, and other marginalized people at risk. While the member organizations of the coalition are all busy with their own campaigns, often on specific related demands, the coalition will now be shifting towards efforts to turn their collective demands into action. I speak with Karasik and title about the response to the pandemic so far, about what needs to change, and about the Suppress the Virus Now coalition.
1: I'm Dara Title. I am an activist, a socialist, a playwright, and I work in politics as well. I've been an activist most of my life. I find myself often working on campaigns, both professionally and in a volunteer capacity. Personally, I'm an artist from Toronto, and I've been a socialist since I was old enough to know the word. I am one of the founding members of the Courage Coalition, which is a membership-based organization that was founded as a movement to try and bring electoral politics closer to social movements and social movements strategically into electoral political arenas. I also have been helping Daniel Sarah recently on the Suppress the Virus Now coalition. I should mention that I worked on Parliament Hill for five years for the NDP on women's rights, gender equality, and the Indigenous affairs files. I did that until I left in like a blaze of fury, and that's when I founded Courage sort of as a way to ethically engage in politics for myself. But having been in formal politics for so long has given me some serious perspective into how the sausage is made and how policy decisions are made. And let me tell you, they're sometimes not made for the right reasons.
2: I'm Daniel Sarah, they, them. I'm in Toronto. I'm a writer and social movement worker. I feel like I'm such a latecomer to these sorts of understandings of the world. I had no coherent political analysis for most of my 20s. And then I, you know, did a lot more reading and what have you. And then in around 2017, I moved back from the States where I was doing a master's and I started to look for an organizing home, looked to plug plug in here in ways where I could be useful. I was particularly interested in prison abolition work, but I ended up finding an organizing home in the 15 in Fairness campaign, the Fight for 15 in Fairness. And then I work as a writer. I've been writing for Briar Patch magazine fairly regularly over the past few years. And I wrote this piece in the fall called Suppress the Virus Now, which was sort of like the precursor to the organizing or coalition building that Dara and I and many others have been involved in since, which was really sort of just laying out the principles, making it what I thought was like a pretty common sense argument, that aiming at keeping ICUs from maxing out, keeping ICUs from overflowing is not enough, that this is like the policy of even the federal liberal government to a great extent. And it's just like, you're just assuming then that a lot of people are going to die. And you also kind of like know who those people are, broadly speaking. So it's a racist, ableist, ageist policy to... And I've been trying to help pull together the Suppress the Virus Now Coalition, which is an assembly of community groups, labor groups, demanding an effective viral elimination strategy in Ontario and beyond, basically to consolidate around refusal to live with COVID-19 and instead to eliminate it from our communities and put in place the social supports needed to do that equitably and successfully. (coughs) We recently published a statement that has dozens of organizational signatories and a few hundred, I think, individual signatories laying out a roadmap of what that kind of plan or strategy might look like.
0: So this interview won't make it to the airwaves for another couple of weeks, but the day that we're talking is February 3rd, 2021. Ontario Premier Doug Ford has just announced that certain public health restrictions are being eased. So start from today and speak more broadly about the logic that has informed governmental responses to COVID-19 and your concerns with their approach.
2: I'm coming off of a vivid flash of Twitter anger just now at the Ontario government's plan to reopen schools in two weeks, which just seems absolutely murderous. And it's like flying in the face of everything we've learned, even just sort of empirically or experientially through the pandemic so far. So cases have been dropping in Ontario lately, probably in large part because schools are closed. Other things are closed, but, you know, the province was closing all kinds of stuff earlier in the fall. Nothing seemed to be making a difference until the winter holidays when schools were closed as planned and the the closure was extended. So, you know, hard to know. I mean, certainly workplace outbreaks are playing the biggest role and not enough workplaces are closed to really get a handle on the spread. But cases are dropping, but they're like sort of still well over a thousand cases today. They're mostly close to 2000 cases a day in Ontario. But in general, the policy response provincially in Ontario, as in a lot of provinces west of the Maritimes and south of the Northern Territories, has been reactive, in no way proactive, has been full of wishful thinking, magical thinking, unfounded, groundless optimism that simply responding as the situation worsens will be enough to prevent it from sort of worsening exponentially and catastrophically. Just the seeming unwillingness to learn from past mistakes policy-wise, it's mind-boggling. Because at this point, If premature reopening means, as is predicted by epidemiologists or a lot of them, that we have a third wave in the spring driven probably largely by these new variants of concern, which are much more transmissible. The British one seems pretty confirmed that it's significantly more deadly as well. If we have a third wave that's driven by these kind of nightmare variants, schools are going to close again. Businesses are going to close again. And I hate to sort of frame this in these terms, but even from that perspective, even adopting the perspective of the Ford government's presumed base, you know, what business thrives with this sort of like unpredictability of cyclical shutdowns that are announced a week in advance? It's just a totally self-defeating strategy or non-strategy from almost every perspective, including what we'd understand to be like right-wing ones. It's like sort of chasing momentary popularity in the polls, tailing the logic of, you know, short-term profits and reports to shareholders that don't seem to even take the next year into account. Zooming back to look at the federal response, so much of it is at this point wildly invested in the rescue provided by vaccines. I mean, it's amazing that we have effective vaccines so quickly, but it's still so restricted by the logic of capitalism, you know, these vaccines are patented, and they can't be cheaply reproduced to give the global south access to them, which again, is a completely self-defeating strategy, even setting aside the ways that it's cruel and unethical. The reason it's self-defeating is that these new variants are showing increasing resistance to the existing vaccines. And so sure, booster shots can be made, vaccines can be updated in theory, but to have to be constantly updating these vaccines, let alone the possibility that, you know, there's a mutation that completely evades existing vaccine models. At this rate, we're going to be chasing our tail on this for years, even in the parts of the world that have the prospect of sooner access to the vaccines. So again, it feels like such an incoherent strategy on every level.
1: Maybe I can just add in that I'm like the mother of two children right now. One of them is high needs and out of school and eight years old and just losing his ever-loving mind. And it's awful. It's terrible for parents. Both me and my partner have to work. Nobody's around to help with the kids. I had a baby this year during COVID. So I get, like I so fundamentally get how stressed out and upset parents are. Even as such, I think if you really put two parents in the community, the facts, which are, listen, I mean, if you're going to send your kids to school right now, it's going to mean other children could die. It's going to mean that disabled folks can die. It's going to mean that elderly people are going to die. And that is the fact of it. And that's not how it's presented. And I think, Daniel, Sarah, you're actually giving too much credit to politicians when you're saying that this is an incoherent strategy. I don't think it is a strategy. I think you're perfectly right in the sense that it's totally reactive. I don't think they're thinking at all. Like we, as the public, sort of have this sense that they're thinking about making moves in order to protect the health of people. They are making moves in order to protect their chances of re-election. But in doing so, they're not thinking remotely about saving people's lives. They're not thinking about the long-term health and well-being of any person in the society. And as a parent, all I can say is, you just got to pay me to not work at the same time as trying to parent my kids. That's the only way to do it. You have to like allow for everything else in society to be shut down. So case counts are super, 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 super low. And then the first things that should open should be public spaces that parents can safely bring their kids into, including parks, including schools. And that should be the very first thing that happens because schools aren't free childcare. so that, you know, the rest of the economy can function. Schools are places that support the health and mental well-being and education of kids. And I actually don't think that's what people are thinking about when they make these choices to reopen schools or close schools. They're just thinking, well, my workforce needs to get back. The economy needs to continue. I don't want to spend the $6.4 billion that I haven't spent already on COVID on helping people through this time with income supports. I want to keep that money. So that when it comes time for my re-election, I can erase part of the deficit and look like I'm fiscally responsible, which is my take on why Ford hasn't actually spent billions of dollars that he has in pocket.
0: Have there been moments over the last year where you've heard an announcement of some government decision with respect to COVID and just been like, what on earth are they doing?
1: Well, there was this one moment where they started reopening restaurants, where (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my eight-year-old <laughs> will turn to me and was like, but mommy, aren't COVID cases just going to get worse now? And I said, yes, child, they are. And he said, why are they doing it then? And it just, I don't know what to say. And then he said, well, when they get bad, won't they have to close down again? And I said, yes.
2: It's so funny listening to you describe your child's response because I use almost the exact same words myself just like dumbfounded or gobsmacked, like how could they not see that B would follow from A in that context? The reopenings in the fall, for me, that was a real shift. I think objectively it was a shift in government policy, but also just in my own thinking and emotional responses to the the situation. Because I think in the spring, I was I think maybe like a lot of people, surprised by how comprehensive in some ways the state's response to the crisis was. I mean, it was not complete by any means. It was not a winning strategy. It did not put us in a position to avoid a second wave and so on, although it could have. There was a point where the job could have been finished and then testing and tracing massively funded and isolation supports and income supports massively funded that would have prevented the virus from taking off again. But, you know, in the spring, they did a more comprehensive shutdown of non essential work and school than has happened still in the second wave, even though the second wave has been by almost every measure worse. And the CERB was announced quite quickly and you know the CERB had lots of holes and was imperfect in so many ways. But there was like a new program that was put in place to support people who'd lost income. And if you were used to the state constantly responding in the ways that we've seen the state respond in the fall, that is like with social murder, you know, with like fairly open contempt for marginalized communities, the impulse to like let people fend for themselves, you know, profit over people and so on. It feels like that basic sort of DNA of capitalism and liberalism reasserted itself in the fall, while in the spring there was this weird sort of like suspension, partial suspension of some of those ways of interacting, like decarceration seemed like it was possible and was even happening in some limited ways in the spring. And that felt like there was this moment of like, wow, like what could be possible in this moment? There's this almost, with whatever caveats about military metaphors, almost like wartime mobilization of resources and sort of big ideas that were able to be implemented quite quickly because of the crisis. And it felt super hardening in some ways. The failure of that promise in the spring, I think, contributed to the explosion of uprisings in defense of black lives in the summer and so on. And then in the fall, it was like, okay, this death cult of capitalism is back. The pause couldn't be sustained forever. And now, you know, things are just reopening and reopening, even as the case numbers rise without any clear answer to the question like, well, what happens when lots of people predictably get sick? There was all kinds of really amazing, energized, in some ways quite effective organizing happening, rank-and-file educators organizing, groups that are in the coalition like Ontario Parent Action Network and uh, Ontario Education Workers United, really courageous, really well-organized eviction defense, Keep Your Rent Toronto and a bunch of other groups, Solidarity, People's Defense and Malton People's Movement, like all these groups were doing such great work. And then on the sort of level of policy, there didn't seem to be any sort of like mass resistance able to use less. Like no large scale work stoppages, no public disruptions of the kind we saw during the summer in the States, especially. It just felt like, and this is a limit so far of the coalition too, it was all statements and it was all petitions and it was small scale militancy that was really important. It was stopping violence, but by definition, not able to stop the machine, not able to stop a policy that was putting more and more people in the hospital and, you know, killing people. Tell me about the process that led
0: to the Suppress the Virus Now coalition.
2: So I published that Suppress the Virus Now article in November in Briar Patch Magazine. And initially, even when I was writing it, I was like, is this the best way to advance this idea? Or should I just be trying to like, you know, call up or message a bunch of people I know who are organizing in different ways already around the crisis and see if people want to come together and bring those existing demands and bring those existing struggles kind of under a united front umbrella around demanding a viral elimination plan. Once the article was published, there was some encouraging feedback. And in particular, there was feedback from Winnipeg. A group called Communities Not Cuts in Manitoba has launched this campaign called Suppress the Virus MB. And it's much more multifaceted and active than our coalitional work is at this point. They've been doing weekly outdoor distanced actions and they've been doing art actions and they have lawn signs So it was like, oh, well, maybe we could build capacity to do the same in Ontario. And so I started messaging a lot of folks and calling up some folks and having conversations about what a coalition could look like and called a meeting in November that 30 or 40 people attended. And, you know, some groups were just like really busy with their own existing struggles and didn't feel like there'd be much of a benefit to plugging into a broader based coalition. And others, there's a certain degree of anxiety, I think, among folks who have been fighting certain battles for a long time and, you know, dedicating a lot of resources and time to doing that. You know, people are at capacity. People are really spread thin. And some of that work of coalition building seemed to be about convincing folks that building a united front or building an intersection of different struggles would not suck energy from existing demands and, in fact, would be aiming to boost them. And then for the past couple of months, we have different working groups within the coalition that have been working on different approaches to raising the profile of this demand and applying pressure. And the most active was the one that was working on this statement that we just published. So that was sort of where a lot of the energy ended up going. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And I think now we're looking to find ways to push forward and escalate and see what our capacity is to do more
1: without a founding document and something that you can really easily just send to a person and be like, hey, this is what it's all about. Do you agree or disagree? Are you in or are you out? It's hard to mobilize folks. So I'm glad that we got the statement done and dusted and it's out. And now I think time is of the essence. And the next steps the coalition will be meeting pretty soon, and at least I (laughs) and some folks from Courage will be planning to propose more actions and learning from comrades at West in terms of the kind of big, public, active, creative campaigns that we can exploit here coming up on the one-year anniversary of covid just listening to the rhetoric that's out there right now in terms of like, oh, we're losing time, the economy, all this hand wringing around the fact that like, you know, we can't keep restaurants and businesses closed for one more minute or, or ever. We'll suffer this like massive amount of bankruptcies that will just cripple the economy forever and ever and ever. You know, I, I wonder sometimes if it had been put towards folks as, well, you can lock down for a couple months. Or you can suffer through several years of lockdowns and you're going to lose a whole bunch of your loved ones unless you're super wealthy just because the government is just too servile to capital and won't risk profits for the rich. If that's the choice that's put to people, that you're looking at a few hard months versus several long, long years, then maybe that's where we can communicate this campaign better to the public at large and really get mass mobilization beyond even just the left. Although I do think that it's a good idea for lots of organizations that call themselves left, including, you know, NGOs and including health networks and including some more moderate ones to jump on board with a COVID zero plan, as has happened in several countries around the world. We don't have years to spare. We have a climate apocalypse on our hands coming at us pretty fast, you know, two or three years of stifled mobilization and stifled efforts. will suffer for it given my understanding of how governments work and how the only real way to get them on side is not through evidence-based research. It's not through the scientific community. It's not through international examples. It's really going to be like through threatening their re-election. And so if we can mount a simple campaign that as many people as possible can participate in that's focused around expressing huge displeasure and disapproval towards Doug Ford, like his numbers are low. And I think there is a potential for this campaign for COVID zero and for suppress the virus to communicate its messages really clearly.
0: So what are the key things that the coalition is demanding? And how are you making the case that yes, these would work, they would take us a long way to suppressing the virus?
1: There is nothing mysterious about what needs to happen. Other places have done it. You need to close unsafe workplaces. You actually need to mandate that offices of lower wage workers have to let their workers work from home and other such things in places that you actually can't close because of like essential supply chain issues and healthcare, care, etc. You need to just have fleets of testing and tracing and they just need to flood risky places with testing and tracing, testing and tracing. You need to really understand that marginalized communities are the ones that are most at risk and need to take this as a moment of opportunity to finally allow people to live out of poverty and to finally allow people to have the supports they need to improve their overall health, not just to stop the spread of COVID. And then hopefully we never come back from that. There are things that are getting lost in the shuffle with this like half-assed non-plan of the governments that are really risky to lose, that need to stay open. For example, like abortion clinics and sexual health services. I work as a sexual health advocate and at the beginning of the pandemic, we just saw those kinds of health services shut down. These things have to stay open. They have to be supported by like fleets of contact tracing. You know, we have friends, Daniel, Sarah, and I who work in film and television and a film and television set right now in Canada is probably the safest place in the world because they have these private trucks that show up. I don't know, money buys them and they just test and trace, test and trace, test and trace the people who are on set. And that allows a big industry to keep functioning safely.
2: Minimally, we can emulate the best of what's been done elsewhere. You know, like in the Maritimes, one thing that seems to have been very effective, and certainly part of its effectiveness had to do with them doing it early, but they have interprovincial travel restrictions and just being really careful about not importing cases from elsewhere one of the priorities for our coalition has been to emphasize non-carceral solutions. So like when Quebec was implementing a curfew, and there was talk that the same might happen in Ontario, there was a lot of members of the coalition were really vocal that curfew was not something that we should call for as part of a viral suppression strategy, because it was just going to intensify policing, wouldn't even probably be very effective in diminishing viral spread. But even if it would, it was just going to seriously agitate existing harms. So closing workplaces and supporting people, I mean, that's the main thing. Shut down everywhere that can be shut down without disrupting fundamental supply chains and so on, and pay people to stay home and give housing to those who don't have homes. And in a variety of other ways that our coalition worked to propose, support people made more vulnerable by the pandemic and give people access to voluntary isolation by limiting economic coercion that gets people into the workplace. The other huge piece of this situation that even if we were to crush the spread locally, there would still be these pockets of outbreaks that this has been consistent across other jurisdictions. And we need really strong public health resources to get those under control before they spread. And in workplaces, adequate PPE.
1: Can we talk about the vaccine for a second, too? Like, we need this vaccine to go out effectively. And it seems completely insane to me that Pfizer and Moderna and other people are not sharing this precious recipe and allowing other people to have it and to distribute it as widely as it possibly can be distributed right now. And the fact that we have no... National sovereignty for vaccine creation is, you know, just a function of neoliberalism of the past, literally just Mulroney handing over the keys to people's lives to private U.S. pharmaceutical companies. So can we turn our coalition and part of our campaign towards just bringing as much shame as humanly possible to big pharma and to corporate pharma for the fact that they won't share and distribute the vaccine as equitably and widely and quickly as possible
0: you have been listening to my interview with Daniel Sarah Karasik and Dara Title of the Suppress the Virus Now Coalition. To learn more about their work, look for their January 25th statement on briarpatchmagazine.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.